Welcome, everybody. Nice to see all of your faces on one of the first sunny Sundays we've had this winter. We are glad that you are here. Those of you who are blinded by the sun, uh, enjoy the warmth because that's the benefit of being blinded. But we're glad that you are here. Uh, if you are new or uh, curious about the Christian faith, if this is one of the first times you've been here, uh, we take a few moments in the middle of our service to reflect on scriptures. We're going through the letter John wrote, his first letter to the churches, and we are in chapter two, and here to help us with the reading is Sarah. Today's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we may know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. John here is trying to help his people understand something, and that is this, that doubt has a solution. They, his readers, had begun to doubt whether they knew God and whether God knew them. And doubt, doubt can really mess with your spiritual life. If you're a Christian, you know the power that doubt has to derail your relationship with God. If you begin to get doubt that God is for you and that God loves you, a number to happen. I'll name a few. Firstly, if you doubt that God loves you, then doing something sacrificial or costly or selfless for God's sake becomes far less appealing. You get very demotivated in your desire to trust and obey God, it gets sometimes substantially, even fatally diminished. Secondly, if you doubt that God loves you and is for you, then the selfish desires that normally tempt you increase in their power and scope. Temptation begins to become much more irresistible to you. Those little voices start speaking to you, why not? Why deprive yourself? of all these pleasures when God seems to have abandoned me. The voices get louder and louder. Your desire begins to multiply. So doubt causes your assurance to erode and your desire to be obedient to diminish. And here's what maybe not enough churches and not enough Christians have admitted. We all doubt. In fact, we're prone to doubting. The disappointments of life in this broken world are many, and those disappointments make us wonder if God is really for us. And the darkness of our own selfish hearts makes us wonder if we are for God. 
As you grow in your Christian life, God's spirit reveals depths of hidden selfishness and darkness that nobody else can see, but your heart knows. And so doubt from the inside and doubt from the outside has a tendency to assail us. So what do we do with the doubt that is real? Doubt that dogs us and discourages us and demotivates us. John here gives us two antidotes to help us deal with the doubt that we all face. He says two things. Firstly, root yourself in God's forgiveness. Secondly, run after his obedience. Root yourself in his forgiveness. Run after his obedience. Or rest in Christ your advocate and run after Christ your example. Here they are. Firstly, root yourself in Christ your advocate. Rest in what he's done. Uh, I want to thank Joel. Uh, Joel, you preached my sermon much more briefly and concisely than I could have, and you used my verse, so thank you. I am here simply following in the trail of your magnificence. Let's look at these first two verses. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here, in the first couple of verses, we just hear the whole purpose of the letter. John says, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. It's like the main point of the whole letter. I want you to break the patterns of sin in your life. Now, having said that, I want to be utterly realistic in how to do that. I recognize that you need somewhere to go with your sin and your guilt because if you don't, doubt rises. And as we've learned, doubt demoralizes, doubt discourages, doubt demotivates. So John says, if, and his if here is if, and it is certainly the case, if anyone sins, then we have an advocate with the Father. The word advocate in Greek, paraclete, means hard to exactly translate. It means someone who is well-liked and applauded and admired by the person who is offended by someone, and the person who is offended by someone has this paraclete come in and vouch for that person to say, forgive them, show your favor to them, change your anger for them. And that's what this means. Our closest example is like a defense lawyer in a case. And John is saying to all of us, I know you have sin. You know you have sin. We tend to say to each other, because we don't like to look at it, well, none of us are perfect, which is fine when you're meeting with each other. None of us are perfect. But when you're meeting with God, and you say to God, none of us are perfect, None of that works with him. Because who are you meeting with? One who is perfect. One who has an infinite disgust with evil and selfishness and wrong. And when you say to God, well, none of us are perfect, you're really kind of saying it's okay to be a sinner and God wants you to know it's not okay. Sin is not fine. It makes you divide from me. It alienates you. It makes you guilty in the courtroom of my justice. You need help. You need a paraclete. You need someone to speak for you. And the verse here says we have one. 
Jesus Christ the righteous. And when God says that, you look and you see Jesus and you go, oh, actually one of us was perfect. And he was perfect for me. You see, it says, Jesus Christ the righteous is the hilasmos, the atoning sacrifice. In this translation, the propitiation for your sin. Hilasmos, generically defined, means that the means by which sins are forgiven. In this specific text, in these days, when they were reading it, because there were so many other religions, it usually meant the method by which a God who is angry with me is appeased with me. And in this specific gospel case, it means that the holy God who has every right to be angry with my sin now looks with favor upon me because someone has paid the debt of my guilt. And what John says here is not that Jesus offered the right sacrifice to pay, but that the right sacrifice is Jesus himself. The great high priest of the book of Hebrews is the great priestly offering in the book of Hebrews and in this verse. Jesus is the payment that covers the debt of everything you have ever done wrong. Your sin may be infinitely offensive to an infinitely perfect God, but Jesus' perfect, sinless life was offered as an infinitely satisfactory debt payment for your sin. God himself, out of infinite love for you, while you were a sinner, God himself sent his son Jesus, and Jesus himself willingly offered up himself to cover your debt. Your debt was infinite. The price to pay paid was infinite. Jesus' precious life was infinite in value and perfectly paid the price. The Apostle Paul dealing with these ideas, the subject of guilt and sin and doubt, made it very clear in Romans 8. If you doubt that God loves you, hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Romans 8 verse 33, who will bring any charge? against God's chosen people. It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, paracleting for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? He continues in verse 38, well, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels angels, nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your sin and the debt was nailed to a tree and it is paid. Recently, I rented a car as part of the Car rental, uh, Joe Choi, the uh, silent godfather of Grace Toronto Church. Joe Choi said we, we should pay for the daily accident insurance, so we did. Now, if you know about daily accident insurance, it's, it's a few extra dollars, sometimes more than a few, but it covers any scrapes or accidents that may be incurred when you're driving it. Now, I've been renting rental cars for a long time, but I've always been too cheap to put the daily accidental coverage on. So as he was giving me the keys and the final paperwork, I said, so do I meet someone at the car? 
And he looked at me. He said, why? I said, well, to inspect the car and see what dings, et cetera, exist so that when I bring it back, you can see I added no dings. And he looked at me and he just kind of narrowed his eyes and he said, but you just paid for accidental insurance. Who cares what dings <laughs> you put on it? It's paid for. And I looked at him and I backed up. I think Joe was already headed to the car because Joe's younger and smarter than I was. But I looked at him and I went, right, it's paid for. Too many of us are like me. We've had many years of a rhythm of thinking that if there are any extra sins, dens or scratches in our moral record, we have to pay for them. And what God wants to say is, it's paid for. Why is this important? If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, it's pretty simple. John says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for not only our sins, but that of the whole world. John is not saying that all the sins of every single person are automatically forgiven. The rest of the gospel is very clear about that. All of the writings of the New Testament are clear about that. What does it mean? Some scholars think it means, well, Jesus' sacrifice is infinite, therefore sufficient for every single person in the world. And that's surely true, but probably not what John meant here. What John meant to say, because of the context of what was going on and, and people leaving the church and having different beliefs and thinking they didn't need their sins atoned for, what John was probably saying is there are a lot of religious and other beliefs out there in the world. Wherever you go in the world, there is only one way to be right with God, the way he gave us in his son Jesus. You can go to India, you can go to China, you can go to Iran, it doesn't matter where you go. There is only one way. He is the one way, the atoning sacrifice for the whole world and the only one. You must come to Jesus to have your sins paid for, to have your debt covered, and to be right with God. There is no other way. Christian, I think what John wants us to know is that to truly obey God, we need a foundation of being forgiven by God. This is where he starts. God has already forgiven you of everything you did wrong. I want you not to sin, but you, you need to understand if you sin, go here as a refuge. But if you want to obey, start here as a starting point. Now, most people go, well, wait a minute, that sounds like a recipe for disobedience. I'm already totally forgiven. <laughs> Get in that rental car, man, and go play smash up derby. No. Think deeply with me for a moment. When we think that way, we have reduced God to the guy at the rental car desk. It's transactional. I don't really care about him. I don't care about his company. I'm just glad I have freedom to do whatever I want. If you have that understanding of what God's forgiveness means, then you have that relationship with God, which is purely transactional. He's a boss who will reward you or a boss you're afraid will punish you. He's not a loving father who sent your brother, his son, to die for you. 
and rise for you. And he shed blood for you because he loves you and he wants you to feel that love and live out of that love. You see, the deepest kind of obedience is not transactional obedience, fearing punishment, hoping for reward. The deepest kind of obedience is the kind of obedience you give to someone you love because of the love you feel from them. Isn't it? And isn't that the kind of obedience you think God's asking for from the inside out, not from the outside in? Does God want transactional obedience? Or deep from the heart, gratitudinal, familial obedience? Which kind of obedience do you think Jesus gave his Father? Which kind of obedience do you think Jesus wants you to have to his Father? Which kind of obedience did God send the Spirit of Jesus into you to give? To truly obey God in a way that honors God, you need a rock-solid assurance that you are forgiven as a foundation for that obedience. The debt has been paid. I no longer need to fear. I no longer need to be guilty. I no longer need to be ashamed. An advocate has paid the price. Let me start there. Doubt vanishes when we survey and meditate upon and start to sink deeper and deeper roots and let the unconditional grace of God in Jesus begin to feed our soul and fill our soul. And when that begins to happen, then you are ready for our second point. Root yourself in Jesus, your advocate, and then run after Christ, your example. Verses 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, and, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's another way, John's saying, to erase the doubts that you have. The first one is to root yourself in what he has done to forgive all your sins and to run to him and confess to him when you sin. But the second way to know that you actually love God is to see if you have a life of obedience, to follow Jesus, to listen to his commands. And he has given us many commands. You know, Jesus isn't like Santa with Birkenstocks and long hair, right? He's the Lord of glory come into human form. And if you keep his word, you can know that you're his child. If you make it a practice not to care about keeping his commandments, you're fooling yourself and you're what he says is a liar. There is no truth in you about this issue. But if you keep his word, his love in his, is in you. His love poured on, on the cross is being reflected through you. And it is become, the word Greek here for perfect is, uh, could also be used for completed. It, it has finished its work. 
His love in you has completed its appointed task. His love in you has begun to ooze out of you, and we know you're his. In other words, God's love poured into you by his grace should fill you and flow out of you. It should change you and then reflect through you. Then we know it's completed its task of transformation of you because you are not anymore a slave, but you are, as Joel said, a son or a daughter. Do you want to know that you know God? In the first point, what John wanted to say is you need to change your relationship with God. The gods of the world that they faced were transactional gods. You gave them this, they gave you that. This is changing your relationship with God, the first point, completely from transactional to a loving father who sent his son. Here in the second point, do you want to know that you know God? Your relationship to sin has been completely transformed. Before, You felt guilty of being sinful, but you enjoyed sinning. In the gospel, if you really understand it, you no longer feel guilty about having sin, but you hate your sin. Your whole relationship to God has changed, but your relationship to sin has also changed. You now see sin as Christ saw sin. How did Christ see sin? as a devastating, fatal, poison, killing all of humanity that was so serious, it demanded his intervention, his humbling, his becoming a human, his being rejected, his dying on a cross after being perfectly obedient, his rising. It was a poison. It was and is a curse. Jesus saw sin this way. So I need to ask you, how long did Jesus know that he would come down and become human and die for your sins. We can't actually measure it because he knew before time existed that he was going to do that. From time and eternity, God the Son has seen sin as the poison it is and has determined to come to you that are so that the sin that afflicts you can be taken away from you, both in its guilt and in its power. You can be free from its penalty and free from its corruption. He has hated sin as a toxic cancer from before there was time. Now, most people tend to measure our maturity in the Christian faith by a raw counting of how many times we've sinned, say, in the past week. If the number is decreasing, we think we're doing better. I'm sinning less. And we're proud of it. We're happy of it. We start comparing ourselves to our past. And then when we really feel like we're doing well, we start comparing ourselves to others. You know, I'm not doing too bad here. None of us is perfect, but I'm closer. But if their sin is increasing, they get ashamed and they get discouraged and they start going in upon themselves and they stop telling people where they are and they start feeling depressed about it. You see, their relationship to sin hasn't fundamentally changed. This is just behavior modification. Your relationship to sin remains ambivalent or even enabling. And I'm with you on that. There are many times when I've looked into my life and said, well, I'm, I'm doing this less. 
There are too many sins that I have held on to far too long because I measured them in that way because I secretly wasn't ready to give them up. My relationship to sin was not, that's a cancer. Any of it will kill me. I need to get rid of all of it. But when the Spirit of God comes into you, he starts to give you his relationship to sin. It is fatal. It is toxic. It is not to be played with. I left room far too long, men and women, for the fire of impatience and anger to live inside my soul and heart. And it scarred me. It has scarred others. I don't want it to scar you. So I went back to Jesus, my advocate, and I asked for forgiveness time and time again. But finally, I got tired of asking time and time again, and I noticed my spirit was being conformed by his spirit to his absolute implacable hatred of sin. And I began to go to my my Savior and my Lord, and the Spirit began to groan in me to plead that I don't do it anymore, and then to plead that I don't want it anymore. And then I began to change. There was a very uh, successful young professional in our church, um, very accomplished, but struggling deeply with sexual sin, as many single men do, hating the shame and the guilt that came out of it, really despising the corruption of relationships that it, um, that it had produced in him. He hated being reminded of it. But he wasn't willing to give it up. It was a bit like his precious. He clung to it. Finally, after several years, he came into my office and we met. And we talked, and the cycle seemed to be repeating again, this discussion of all the bad things that had happened, and he didn't like feeling ashamed, but finally he said, get me counseling. I don't care who. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care where I have to go. I just want to be free. And at that moment, I knew that his relationship to sin had changed. He had come to hate not just the effects but the sin itself. It had become a cancer to him. And it was then I knew, it was then I knew that the love of God had completed its appointed task and he was ready to forsake that sin. And indeed, that was the beginning of his freedom. Because behavior, men and women, follows desire. And desire follows love. What you love, you will desire. What you will desire, you will will and want into your life. But when the love of Jesus Christ has deep enough roots and has captured your heart, it changes not just your view of God, but it changes your view of sin. As you root yourself deeper and deeper into the love of God and it becomes more and more refreshing to you through his grace, your view of sin begins to be transformed. You want to run away more and more quickly and stay away more and more thoroughly. Final reflections and implications. If you're here considering Christianity, I need to tell you these sober and hopeful words. There is a way, but only one way, to get power over your own inner selfishness. 
You can redirect it through self-discipline. You can redirect it through many religions. But to transform it from the inside out, you need Jesus and his spirit to come into you. There is only one way. Not only is Jesus the only way to get forgiveness, he's the only way to get full freedom from the selfish inclinations of your heart. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I need to say to you the same thing. There is only one way. If this one way isn't happening to you, if you're not beginning to hate your sin and really want to leave your sin, then you need to ask, am I really a Christian? But John is saying, if you're willing to leave your sin and walk hard after Jesus, you will struggle. It will be a process. It doesn't happen overnight. The process is called sanctification. But he will meet you, and he will be with you, and for the rest of your life, he will help you. I'm still working on loving God with all that I have. I'm still working on ridding myself of impatience and unrighteous anger. I still have to run to, to Jesus for forgiveness every day and beg his spirit for freedom all the time. But I'm here to tell you there is hope. You can be free. Start today. We saw last week, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all your righteousness. Start by confessing. Let today be the day that you put out the garbage that is in your soul. But when you confess, trust that you are forgiven. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is your advocate. And he has paid the debt fully. Secondly, don't just confess your sin. Ask for the power to forsake your sin and see it as a cancer. Because that is why the Spirit is in you. Not just so you can be forgiven but so you can be free. Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful human nature. For the desires of the sinful human nature are against God's Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the sinful human nature. The Spirit wants you to be free from this selfishness, and the Spirit wants you to have this fruit. Jesus had these, the Spirit of Jesus gives these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things. There is no law. There is no guilt. There is only joy. Doubt leaves. Joy enters. Let joy enter in. Thank you, Jesus, for this time we have. May you now help us, help us to see you as you really are, to root ourselves deep in the grace of the crucified and risen Savior and all of the cancellation of the debt and cancellation of the power of sin that that gives. And help us now to change our relationship to sin and hate it like a cancer, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, a um, few questions here. Well, quite a few. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, a few of them are leftovers from a previous week. Isn't feeling guilt over sin part of feeling repentance? How do you repent without feeling guilt? 
You don't want to feel in great question. Glad you asked. Should have been in my sermon. Take that as a note, and it will be in this sermon if I ever preach it again. There's a difference between guilt in the Christian life and conviction. Guilt is feeling guilty and unworthy because of what I've done. Conviction of sin by the Spirit is feeling convicted. (laughs) Feeling, I've done something wrong. I'm still his beloved. The guilt has been paid, but I shouldn't have done it. And they're different. One goes to general feelings of unworthiness. One goes to, I need to work on this sin because of the one I love. So great question. So I would say feeling guilt over sin, that's why Christians have these careful nuances. When you are a Christian, and especially as a mature Christian, and you feel the Spirit telling you you've done wrong, he's convicting you. He's not wanting you to feel unworthy. He's not wanting you to feel shame. He's covered that. He's paid for that. He does want you to feel repentance. I shouldn't do that anymore. And so to your point, there is an appropriate emotional response from the Spirit prompting you, but I wouldn't call it guilt. What does this commandment refer to in verse 3? Notice how I skated around that? Great question. You caught me. Seeing as the only new command Christ gave us was to love one another. Christ gave us Quite a few commands, by the way. They're summarized by love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another as yourself. So you are partly right. But Jesus gave us other commands. Follow me. Go preach the gospel to the world. Go make disciples. He gave us a lot of commands. Uh, We need to obey them. So the commands here, scholars are all over the map. They generally agree that it's Jesus' commands in the New Testament. The question is, how much does Jesus enfold the Old Testament in? That depends on your theological and uh, hermeneutical where you land. Uh, Are the Ten Commandments included? Jesus' summary of the law that you should obey God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should uh, love, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, excuse me, and love others as yourself is a summary that includes, incorporates the Ten Commandments. They are specific expressions of that general command. And so Jesus gives us this incredible command. And so uh, those are his commandments, and they kind of incorporate the general commandments of God in the Old Testament. Not all of them, the sacrificial imperatives are, are taken care of by his sacrifice. They're redemptive, historically fulfilled. But the moral commandments of the Old Testament seem to be here. Uh, isn't a command to love a moral impossibility? No, it's not. The command to love as perfectly as Jesus does will be a functional impossibility. The ability to get closer and closer and closer is the hope of Christianity. Stop looking at Jesus and saying, I can never get there, and then saying, so I won't even try. With the Spirit of God in you, it's amazing how much progress you can make towards being much more loving, kind, gentle, patient. Trust Him. Because the cross has paid the penalty and broken the power of sin. You have real ability to be much, much more loving than you presently are. 
Go for it. Ask God for it. I think he'll give it to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. And as we respond in song and in the table, I ask that you would be working in our hearts to confess freely and gladly to you. And that your spirit would be empowering us to hate sin. All of it. And to flee from it and to love more deeply. We love that you've given us all the resources to follow you. Help us now to want to. In Christ's name, amen.